Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey guys, welcome to this week's podcast. I have a great interview with Mike Moffitt at the end, a guy who's contributed a lot to the retro gaming scene, and then all the normal news as usual. So let's get started. To follow up with a bit of news from last week, Ben Heck finished part two of his teardown of the Nintendo PlayStation. After doing a cap replacement, he was able to get it mostly working, but there's still no games found for it yet. So it's uh, if you're into it, I would definitely check out the video. It's long, but it was pretty interesting, and I certainly enjoyed it. So uh, I'll post the link right in the description. The same person who created an optical drive emulator for the Dreamcast and Saturn just announced that they're making good progress on one for the PC Engine CD. So, for anybody that doesn't know what an optical drive emulator is, it's pretty much what it sounds like. You unplug the CD-ROM drive from your console, and you plug this in its place, and then you play the games off of flash memory via a menu instead of CDs. So, things like this are really important for preserving these older consoles, because CD-ROM replacement parts are getting harder to find. And it's one thing if you leave your consoles in storage and you don't play them in, you know, like a museum style where you just want to keep them forever, but if you actually enjoy playing them, you're eventually going to wear out that drive, and that's probably going to be one of the first things to go on these consoles. So having stuff like this is very important to be able to preserve and actually play these old consoles properly. Um, I'll post a link when there's any kind of pre-order or anything like that, but no news now other than he's working on it and making good progress. Um, and hopefully they'll be more readily available than the other ones that he sold, because um, historically it's been kind of hard to get them. So hopefully he'll go through a different pre-order process, maybe like what Jason from GameTech and SuperG is doing with their products. But I'll keep everybody updated as soon as I hear anything. The company Wisdom Tree has just launched a Kickstarter campaign for a plug-and-play device that has all of their unlicensed Nintendo games on it. So anybody that's ever seen the Angry Video Game Nerd videos has probably seen this one. And they're basically just a bunch of terrible games, and the company didn't want to go through Nintendo's licensing. So they had these games that you'd have to plug into another one, or they're basically just shady ways to get around the copy protection and the the lockout chip. And they're just notoriously terrible. But somehow, their Kickstarter has almost been backed. I guess they asked for 16000 and it's already at 10000 now at the time I'm recording this video. I just, I can't understand why anybody would back this. The games were so terrible. And it's also one of those things where this is where I love emulation. Because go fire up an emulator and try one of these pieces of garbage and just see for yourself. that I just, I don't understand who would want to back this. And I'm really sorry if you guys disagree, but... Take a look at the video for yourself and see what you think, but uh, I will definitely not be supporting this one. Amazon UK may have accidentally leaked the release date and price of the PlayStation Neo. So the release date's supposedly October 13th at around 450 and that's the PlayStation console that's just the slight spec bump with the 4K video playback. So not 4K gaming support as far as I know, just the 4Play disc support. Um, any more info that comes out, any solid info, I'll post in case anybody wants to pre-order or anything. 
I don't own a PS4 yet, but I might actually buy this one just because it has the new 4K support um, for the discs and just because there's a bunch of PlayStation 4 games I've really wanted to try and haven't gotten around to it yet. So I'll post as soon as there's any news, but I'm sure this is one of those things where it'll be all over the place as soon as it's um, announced. Here's a piece of news I missed from a few weeks ago. A Game Boy emulator for the Virtual Boy has just been updated. That's right, a Game Boy emulator for the Virtual Boy. So it's actually really cool. I tried it when it first came out, and there's been a few updates since, and the last one was just a few weeks ago. But basically, you take the only existing Virtual Boy ROM cart, and you could use this emulator and drop a Game Boy ROM in it, and then just play it right on your Virtual Boy in stereoscopic 3D. So the fact that it's only one color is kind of fitting, because so are the original Game Boy games. And it actually works really well, all things considered. The 3D depth looks great, the games are playable. Some are a little slow, slower than others, but if you own a Virtual Boy and the Flash Boy ROM cart, you kind of have to try this one, because it's just so much fun to play through them. And I never made it through all the way through any of the games, but uh, I will eventually, and I just, uh, if you're a Virtual Boy fan, you're definitely going to try this one out. RetroUSB.com has just released a USB flash drive shaped like a Nintendo cartridge. They call it Super Media Brothers, and it looks like a mini Super Mario Brothers Nintendo cartridge. It looks really cool, and I would totally buy one, but it's only 4 gigabytes. So I really wish they made one larger, because I, I like to use 64 gig or bigger for all the crap I have to carry around with me. But um, hopefully they'll come up with different sizes. It is only 20 bucks, but I would have gladly paid double for something a lot uh, bigger in storage. But definitely check it out. It looks pretty neat. It looks like something uh, anybody who needs a small USB stick and likes retro gaming would probably want to have. Arcade gamer Billy Mitchell has just reached the highest possible score on the original Pac-Man arcade game. Billy Mitchell was the guy that was featured in the documentary The King of Kong, which I absolutely loved it. I'm not a big Donkey Kong fan, but anybody that loves arcade games really probably would be interested in it. And it's a cool story about two guys who just both are gunning for the highest score. Um, well, he also now, I guess, is working on Pac-Man, and he's got a pretty cool interview on YouTube, which I'll link to and everything, but um, it's neat that some of these old arcade games really still get such a big amount of attention, so uh, definitely check it out. And speaking of Pac-Man, Pac-Man Championship Edition 2 is being released this September for PlayStation 4, Xbox One, and PC. It actually looks really awesome. Like, I haven't gotten this excited about Pac-Man since I remember seeing the originals in the arcade. Um, but it adds new features, but at the same time, it sticks to the same core gameplay. It's not like that 3D Pac-Man thing they had going a couple of years ago. It's, you know, original Pac-Man on steroids. So if you're a fan of the game, check it out, definitely. The website ThinkGeek released another cool little toy this week. It's called the Retro Arcade Machine X, and it's a miniature arcade machine with 300 games built into it. Uh, it doesn't list the games. I'm sure most of them aren't that good. But it's a 2.5-inch color display and then just a little tiny stick with two buttons. Uh, and it looks actually pretty neat. For 25 bucks, it seems like something fun and novel you might play a handful of times. But what I would really like is for somebody to build a personal bar top style arcade machine that's kind of medium sized so I had a stand up Mortal Kombat arcade machine that was 24 inches uh, 24 inch monitor that was freaking awesome I loved it I think that's the perfect size too for an arcade monitor a lot of the older stand up arcades have 20 inch or even smaller which for a stand up arcade that's okay but it's a little too big for something to sit down right in front of 
um, at least in my opinion. And then you have the 8-inch BVMs, like the one I have up behind me, which I use that for testing all the time, but it's just a little bit too small to actually play games on. So I always wanted like a 14-inch BVM to be in an arcade-style box that just fits on a table right in front of you. So you could sit in front of it, bar, in front of it bar top style and have like an X-Arcade Solo, which is the arcade stick that's just one player, not two. And you'd be able to actually have an arcade experience with a great CRT, because those BVMs are way better quality than any arcade monitor ever was. And you could just have it right there on your desk. But I don't know anybody that, that can build something that high quality, and I don't know any of the companies that already sell stand-up arcades that do. There was that company a few weeks ago that wanted a couple hundred thousand dollars to push through their stand-up arcades on Kickstarter, but that just seemed like a scam. It also seemed like they were selling the 8-BitDo Classic controllers for $100 and marketing them as their own. So, and it's kind of hard to find. I wish there was just a good, reputable arcade machine company you could buy stuff like this from. And, you know, I'd be willing to pay a fair amount for it. I'm not going to pay $2,000 for it. I could probably build a half-assed job myself for a few hundred. But if it was fairly priced, I really think a lot of people would be interested in it. So um, I guess I kind of went off on a rant there. But if you want the little miniature 2.5-inch version, go spend 25 bucks at ThinkGeek. Uh, and if you want a bigger, more professional CRT-based version, let me know where we could find one of these because I really don't know a good, reliable place for it. Nintendo released a playable demo for Star Fox Zero this week, and it comes a few months after the game was released, but I guess it's been getting mixed reviews. Some people have told me, uh, don't play it, the motion controls are awful, some people like them. I haven't tried it myself yet, but I plan on downloading a free demo just to kind of see what it's like. But I really think they should have done this first, and they probably should have done it months before the game was launched, just so they can get through any of the bugs, because... You know, as many testers as you have, you're never going to be able to get real feedback until it gets to the hands of the consumer. So it's good that they released the demo at all. I just wish that they had released it way beforehand so they can get better feedback and kind of see what people really wanted the game to be. And to follow up on last week's news about the NES Mini, Nintendo has released a commercial on it and as well as showed it at Comic-Con where people were able to take a look at it and kind of hold it in their hands and check it out. But no one, as far as I know, has posted any info on the functionality, the features. None of them showed any scan lines or anything like that. So there's no word on its actual functionality other than the fact that it looks pretty cool and it's pretty much the same as all the news that we knew last week. But I'll post all the links to everything for anybody that's interested themselves if they want to take a look at it. So I guess Sega's been seeing all the nostalgia and the, the callbacks to classic game consoles get popular again because they just announced Sonic Mania, a new 2D Sonic game, is going to be released in 2017. And to be honest, it looks really cool. It looks like it's going to be like the next iteration of the Sonic games. I remember Sonic 4 Episode 1 came out, and I absolutely loved it. And then for whatever reason, Episode 2 came out, and it just... It wasn't bad, it just didn't feel the same. I, I can't really describe it. If you guys, uh, anybody's played it could maybe put it in better perspective in the comments, that would be great, but hopefully this will be a big win. Hopefully they'll be able to really take it back and make make it a true 2D side-scrolling Sonic game that feels just as good as the originals, because there were a lot of good Sonic games. I think Sonic 3 and Sonic CD were my favorites, but there's a ton of good ones. Even the ones on the handheld consoles were great too, so hopefully this will be as, uh, at least half as good as those and better than what's been coming out lately. 
And to close out the news, I finally am finishing up the Upscaler review page. So that's basically the, what I've been talking about on the podcast a bunch of times, but as a page on the website. So just comparing the different Upscaler options, the OSSC versus the Framemeister and all that stuff. So I'll leave a link to it. You guys let me know what you think, and uh, please point out if I made any mistakes or anything, because I've been working on this so long and put so much time into it that it's kind of like if you drive down the same street every day but don't know the name of the street, you just know how to get there. I get like that a lot with some of these pages where I spend so much time on the little details that I forget some of the basic stuff. So people will read it and come back and be like, oh, that was great, but you know, where's the on button or, or something simple like that. So um, if you guys were interested in the different upscaler comparisons, maybe check out the page and just let me know what you think. Okay, on to the Q&A stuff. Uh, I'm going to start with my friend Justin, a.k.a. the Goodwill Hunter, who uh, was commenting on last week's video about some of the arcade systems, and he was talking about the submarine one that I was playing. Justin said, Bob, submarines do not have portholes and don't shoot missiles. They have a perisco <laughs> periscope and shoot torpedoes. So, I feel like a raging idiot right now, because my father was in the submarines, and his father, my grandfather, was chief petty officer in the submarines. I grew up knowing every submarine movie, every submarine video game, all the way back to Gato for the Tandy 1000. I know that. I was just excited and, and just talking about something I enjoyed and totally didn't even realize I said the wrong things. So anybody in the Navy and anybody in the submarines that might be listening to this, I'm really sorry. That was such a stupid mistake. And yeah, I know it's not a porthole or a missile. So sorry, I was really dumb. Justin was in the Marines, so he... Uh, he likes to point out these stupid things that I do sometimes. And he also had a, a gaming question. He asked if I'd seen anything about modding Sega Game Gear for AV Out. Um, so, yeah, there's actually three things. There's the Tim Worthington mod, which is just, uh, I believe it's RGB and S-Video and Composite. Um, I've only modded mine for RGB with his kit. Um, I can't remember if it can do the other ones, but I'll definitely double-check. Um, and then there's also the McWill kit, which supports VGA and RGB, as well as has that awesome upgraded screen. But then there's one more that's been talked about and probably still a year away, but that's actually a digital-to-digital -digital HDMI mod for the Game Gear, which has the potential to be pretty amazing. So uh, there's no official word on that yet, other than somebody's working on it. But um, I'll update uh, and talk about it as soon as there's any real, um, real info on it. And I really hope it actually makes it to a real product, because that's something I would definitely buy. My friend Phil also had a comment about the arcade exhibit thing that I was talking about. He said, hadn't you ever been to an arcade before? Is that why you were so impressed? I forgot you were younger than me. Screw you, Phil. We're the same age. We both grew up going to arcades. The whole reason I was so impressed wasn't because I had never seen him before. It's because when we were growing up, it was just the way it is. You don't realize that each one of those games is so unique and special. They're just the games in the arcade. I guess maybe I didn't make the point as well as I should have, but the whole reason I was so excited and impressed about those was because after playing the console versions of them, and only the console versions for the last 10, 15, 20 years, to go back and see the way they were originally designed and how you originally played them was pretty impressive. Because games with, like, vector graphics, you could never actually recreate that experience unless you were using a vector monitor. So for all the people nowadays and all the younger kids, you know, in their early 20s especially or, or even younger, who maybe might get into some of the retro-style games, 
might not have any idea how good they actually are in these original environments. So uh, I hope that makes the point a little bit clearer, but it wasn't that I'd never seen them before, it was just that I'd forgotten how unique and different each of the experiences were. So um, anybody that's in the New York area should probably go check out that arcade. And I'm sure there's other things like that around the country and even around the world, but in the U.S., especially around California and in Brooklyn, we have things called barcades. So it's a bar with a little arcade in it, but it's this is not the same. It's a bunch of hipsters that just think, oh, let's play old things because I want to play old things. And it totally misses the point. They don't have any of the special uh, stand-up arcades, at least the ones I've been to. They just have the basics, like, okay, here's Pac-Man and here's Donkey Kong and you know, here's the five games I could play on an emulator and it'll be identical. What I'm actually talking about, which was shown a lot in this arcade exhibit, are the ones that are completely different. So, and actually, if anybody knows other arcades like that where you could actually go and, and play some of the rare ones, please uh, post that in the comments as well. I'd love to see it. Um, I've actually always wanted to see a Space Harrier 3D arcade setup. I've only played it on the home consoles. I've never actually seen an original Space Harrier 3D arcade machine. And I don't even know if it made it to the U.S. It might have been Japan only. But, uh, yeah, post in the comments if you guys know any good arcades that people could go to. Next up, Flynn's posted a comment in regards to the power switch question of um, how I would kind of pull the plug for the power strips for all my consoles. And he recommends RF remote modules for outlets for shutting off your power strips. So that way um, you could actually just have one remote, you press the button and it kills the power. Those are great. Um, the only thing is if you're extra paranoid like me, those won't stop things like lightning strikes or, or anything like that. So. Um, but if you have uh, good grounding in your house anyway, you probably wouldn't have to worry about it as much. But that's a great tip. Thanks for pointing that out. YouTube user Akutsu260 posted in regards to the discussion last week about uh, Dreamcast and if there's a good quality cable or not. Um, and he posted a link to a VGA cable that's under $10, including shipping, that he says is great quality and he had no problems with. So I'm still going to use the Behar Brothers boxes that I bought just because I, I absolutely love the way they work. But if you just want to try a cheap VGA cable, maybe this is a good thing. Because, you know, for $10, it's not the end of the world if it turns out to be just okay quality. Maybe now you'll end up with a spare, or maybe you get this to hold you off until you could afford one of the bigger boxes. So, uh, But thank you very much for the link, and it'll be in the description for anybody listening. Joseph Garahan posted a question in regards to the Nest Mini. Um... I read through your question a couple times, and I, I don't think you understood the ports, so maybe um, maybe let me clarify it for you, and, and hopefully this will all make sense now. So the ports in the front of the Nest Mini are the exact same ports you'd find at the bottom of a Wiimote. So a classic controller will work, these new Nintendo-style controllers will work, and they should also work in any bottom of a Wiimote as well. Um, but you were talking about adding Bluetooth and using the 8-Bit2 wireless adapter, but that's not really going to work with this at all. Um, maybe I'm just misunderstanding your question, so maybe um, uh, just reword it and, uh, and post it this week. I actually tried uh, responding to you directly on YouTube, but for some reason, sometimes YouTube doesn't let me respond to comments. So I'll respond to three in a row, and they'll all be fine, and then I'll hit send on number four, and it just says, unable to post response. So if you guys, if anybody is a YouTube expert or something and knows why that happens, I, I really have no clue. But sorry, I would have responded to you right there. But um, yeah, pl please let me know if I answered your question correctly or if uh, I just misunderstood what you meant. 
YouTube user 01phoenix79 asked that when I post the links in the description, I add a quick little blurb of what each link is, so that way you don't have to click on the link to find out what it is that you're clicking on. Um, great suggestion. I did it for last week's. So I'll do it for the rest of them as well. And this is the type of stuff where I just love the feedback because, you know, in my mind, I know what all the links are because I'm the one that posted them. So it's kind of ridiculous that I never thought to do that first. But any comments and feedback you guys have, I always really appreciate. So thanks for bringing that up. And uh, anything else you guys got, let me know and I'll, I'll make those changes as well. Eric Hurley asked a good question, and something that I've discussed before with other people, but I can't remember if I ever talked about it on the podcast. He said, do you think ROM carts can be a bad thing in terms of collecting and playing physical games? Does that unlimited choice at your fingertips take away from the physical game experience? I'm wondering if I should buy one, but I'm afraid it will make me not want to keep building a physical collection and somehow devalue the playableness of a game. I fear it will have the same effect of having an iPod full of thousands of songs and just flicking through them versus putting on a vinyl album and listening to it the whole way through. Um, just downloaded Smoke Monsters Ever EverDrive ROM packs, so I'm pretty sure I'm going to get a few. Well, that's they're all great points, um, and I'll, I'll give a very quick description for each because I could easily ramble on each of those. Um, I love ROM carts for a million reasons that I've already mentioned a million times, but basically... Having everything in one place I find convenient, and I find it also better to have something so you don't have to keep taking your expensive games off the shelf and using them. You could just use it right on the ROM cart. But I also have an iPod filled with a million songs, and depending on my mood, I might leave it on random, or I might sit and listen to an album start to finish. And I feel like it's the same way with video games. You know, sometimes you just want to play Tetris for 10 minutes, so flick on your ROM cart, choose your version of Tetris and that's it. But that never for me, I never will put on Zelda and get halfway through and switch to another game. If I want to play through a game, you know, it, it, having all those other choices isn't going to take away from it for me. But the one point that you did make that was a big deal for me as a kid was um, if you bought a, a game and you opened it, you couldn't return it to the store, at least where I lived. And if you even if you rented a game, uh, that's it. You were stuck with it. If you rented a game and it stunk and you brought it back the same day, you had to pay the same $8 or whatever it was uh, as if you kept it over the weekend. And that is what made a huge difference for me as a kid. Because I'd get a game based on the box art and the description and I'd get excited and I'd take it home. And it, a lot of times it just really sucked and it just ruined my weekend because it was raining out and couldn't go out and play, but I had this terrible game. But other times, it kind of forced me to be patient with a game that I normally would not have taken the time to learn. So there were a lot of games where maybe the first couple of levels, you were just kind of getting used to it, and the controls were a little different. And then by the time you get to the third or fourth level, it's like, holy crap, this game is amazing. I'm so glad I stuck with it. And owning a ROM cart, there's been a few times people have said, oh, you got to play this game. I'll play it for five seconds and go, ah, it sucks, and I'll go right back to a different game. So that is the one big difference, in my opinion, is if you're buying games one at a time and trying them, you tend to give them a lot more time and a lot more of a chance to like it. Whereas with the ROM card, it's very easy just to say, eh, I don't like this one, I'm just going to move on. Um, but the one thing, the one point that was very important to me, especially when I made the ROM card page on my site, was that will ROM cards take away from collectors? And that's the thing that... Both uh, people that own game stores, my collector friends, they all said, absolutely not. 
you know, maybe the guy that was about to buy Nest Golf for $3 won't buy that now because he has a ROM cart. Fine. But the people that want a complete in-box set, they want something to hold on their wall, they want something to really just, you know, they want to collect it to be a collector, it's not going to make the slightest bit of a difference. The only thing that I, I would like to see is some of these ridiculously expensive games come down in price. Um, but, even, you know, even if they don't, as long as you're able to play them on the ROM cart, it's fine. But, um, yeah, I mean, I would... I would never not own one now, and especially for the tribe before you buy. Uh, the game Chiller for Nintendo was selling for like $100, and it's an unlicensed game, and it was, you know, got all this crazy reputation. And when I finally played it, I just, I mean, it was neat. Played it for about 10 minutes, and I was so glad I didn't waste 100 bucks on it. So you know, I, I hope I didn't ramble too much. I hope um, I hope that was the perspective you were looking for. So um, good questions, though. Next up, Jonathan Tuttle asked, The SD media launcher for GameCube suddenly got very hard to come by. Do you know if any of the GameCube regular action replay discs will be able to load up info from a memory card modded SD card? So I was really curious about this myself, because I know all action replays have different versions to them. So I bought just a loose action replay disc from a game store a couple weeks ago. didn't come with the SD launcher, it was just a basic action replay disc. And then I got a cheap SD reader, uh, GameCube memory SD reader from Hong Kong right on eBay. And they both worked exactly like the kit did together. So I'm sure there's got to be different versions of the action replay. I'm just not sure if only some versions are compatible. Um, and they don't print the versions on the outside. Uh, so um, I got lucky, and I'm pretty sure uh, it's worth trying if you guys have the ability, but I'll post the link for the cheap SD card reader that I got for GameCube, um, and give it a try and let me know, uh, especially if you already have an action replay disc laying around, but um, it worked for me, so hopefully it'll work for everybody else. Okay, next up I have a pretty cool interview with Mike Moffitt, who is Michael J. Moffitt on the forums. His webpage was one of the first that featured any real RGB info, so I've been following his work for a really long time, and it's cool that I actually got to talk to him. And uh, the first time I even corresponded with him at all was just right before this interview. I just emailed him and said, hey, I just did an interview with Retro Dan, who brought up your name. You know, um, would you want to do an interview with me? And he, he responded right away, like, yeah, sure, cool, let's do it. So it's neat. It's, uh, it's always nice to see how many friendly people are in this the retro gaming community that just uh, enjoy this stuff as much as I do. And as you'd expect, we nerded out for a little while and just talked about everything that hopefully you guys are interested in. So I hope you enjoy it, and uh, if you like it, please subscribe, and see you next week. Hey guys, we're here with Michael Moffat. How's it going, Mike? It's nice hey. to finally meet you and talk to you. I've been going on your website sure. for quite a while. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, I'm um, doing well out here in uh, sunny California right now. Yeah, so weren't you a New Yorker? Yes, and I actually am legally still a New Yorker. Uh, I'm still in school at RIT, and uh, I'm about to finish up, but I'm working, uh, doing a co-op internship out here in California at uh, Nest Labs. Oh, cool. So every summer, I've usually been somewhere other than New York. I'd like to work in New York, but, uh, you know, the kind of work I like to do usually isn't there, so. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. My brother moved to L.A. for that exact reason. He's a producer, so can't really be yeah. a producer in New York. <laughs> yeah, it's totally big here, too. So uh, it's cool to have you on because I'm pretty sure everybody listening is seeing your name come up once or twice here. You know, you're Michael J. Moffat on the forums and everything, and that's your website. Yeah. And, um, you were, when I first started getting into RGB again, because, I mean, I'd, I'd heard of RGB in the 90s when I was a kid, but no kid could afford any of that stuff. So I just forgot yeah. about it till a few years ago. 
But your site was one of the first ones that came up because you started messing with things like component video conversion, and you were even one of the first that I saw online to start um, modifying TVs for RGB SCART input. I, I remember the uh, yeah the SuperNest thing. Um, yeah, I posted the uh, the you know information I found in the in the first one, which was maybe a little misguided. I didn't expect people to call that like a guide. Yeah. Uh, Definitely, the the uh, you know you, you can't just hook it up. There's a little bit of a passive circuitry you're supposed right. to introduce, and you know. So, but uh, maybe that got the ball rolling. I don't know, but uh, yeah, that's actually seen a lot more traffic than I expected. So. Yeah, I think the the only original sites that had any info on RGB was yours and Chris Covell, and maybe one Chris or Covell, two. I read I read his website a lot. Yeah. Yeah, um, and other than that, it was just forums, and half the stuff I found on forums wasn't even right. So. It's, yeah, well, that, that's what's tough about it, right? Because, like, a lot of this stuff, it's it's not like there's um, a lot of professional documentation talking about RGB analog video as a standard. Because really, say standard is pushing it. RGB is, that's the color space, and that's also the component, seal, like, signal separation. But, uh, you know, like, uh, things like high strength, termination, uh, you know, uh, peak-to-peak voltage, these are all going to vary in different implementations. I guess the closest is probably what arcades have. And the arcades are kind of wild west. They don't... They don't really care uh, if it's too high voltage. You turn the tube down, like you know. So. Yeah, and when I first started building my arcade machine, I didn't realize how many used different resolutions, different refresh rates. I mean, it was way off standard for anything because they could be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and like uh, most of the info I saw was uh, uh, Chris Cavell's website. Um, you know, I was in like middle school, and this is weird. Like ten years ago, you know, I, I would just read Nestev all day. Uh, I mean, you're in middle school, you like computers, you go online, you don't have friends, so you you know read Nestev, and uh. You know, from there, I'd see his stuff, and uh, it, it, it never occurred to me until that point that uh, stuff can look better. I was playing on this 1970s TV uh, that my parents had in college uh, to play NES, and, you know, that's fine, but I, I definitely noticed the artifacts, so, you know, it's cool to see that example. And the, the PS1 LCDs were a really popular mobbing choice because they can take RGB. Right. That's why it looks really good with the PlayStation, so... Um, so that's uh, how you got like, started? You were just kind of like, you know, hitting up the forums as a kid and started messing with the stuff? Yeah, I was a member of, a, well, Ben Hex forums a long mm-hmm. time ago, and then um, uh, member Palmer, Palmer Lucky, actually Oculus Palmer Lucky, broke off his own forum called Mod Retro, which is still going, and, uh, you know, that was a that was a big part of high school, too. Um, he and I actually uh, <laughs> collaborate a lot on, like, the Game Boy Backlight stuff. Back oh, when, yeah? Uh, before there were kits on that, so uh, we worked together on the Game Boy Pocket uh, stuff there. So I guess video stuff's always been kind of neat. Um, oh, that's awesome. You know, I, the, the, the backlights for the, the biverted backlight for the Game Boy Pocket and original Game Boy, oh God, it's, yeah. it's like a whole other system. It's I like, did, yeah, experience. I, I, it is a term I did not mean to coin. Uh, it's a little bit of a silly term, but, uh, yeah, I was, um, let's see, Nitro 2K01, uh, introduced me to the idea of using digital logic. And of course that makes sense, but I do together to invert the screen, but I knew that, like, inverted screens looked higher contrast data is wrong, so... Uh, yeah, actually, for I anybody guess, that doesn't know what that is, maybe could you explain a little bit about the Viverge sure. mod for both of them? Yeah, so, um, back when people were doing the DMG backlights, uh, sometimes people would offer an option to invert the screen for better contrast, and that's true. It does get better contrast, and for little sound DJ, which was the main audience here, you'd get the, uh, light text on a dark background, and that's actually maybe preferable. I prefer that when I use it. Mm-hmm. Um... If you want to play a game or something, the game's, you know, inverted. So uh, I thought, like, well, okay, when I turn this polarizer on the screen, the colors get inverted. And there's actually some interesting spots between the full 90-degree rotation. The ideal rotation is really, like, 120. You have to, like, cut a panel out of it. Whatever, it's weird. But, um, 
you know, it occurred to me like, well, if we can invert data going to the screen, we can do a double inversion and biversion was the term uh, that a, you know, 10th grade high school kid comes up with. So, uh, you know, <laughs> that's what I called it. And then, you know, uh, Nitro 2K01, I, I mentioned this to him and he, uh, you know, he made me a little write up on uh, using a inverter to do that. So, yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. And then I made a guide for cutting up the Game Boy board to do that. So, uh, the only downside to it is that the, the, the backlight is um, really great in the dark, but the reflectivity of the screen is mostly lost in the daylight. Mm. So it kind of becomes an indoors-only thing. Um, but but I feel like that's the same that's thing with many, many different handhelds, including cell phones. You know, my iPhone's right. got a gorgeous screen, but if it's a bright, sunny day and I'm sitting outside, I can't read it anyway. It gets so. rough, yeah. Like, uh, I'm, I'm working on a new laptop right here, and it's crappy outside. So, you know, yeah. I, you know I, I thought it was worth it, definitely. So that was one of your first, was that one of your first mod projects, the Biverted Light? That was my first, like, publicized, yeah, the first first one that, like, I was responsible for, definitely. The first, like, mod thing I ever did was, you know, just, like, following a guide or something was the Afterburner kit for Game Boy Advance in fifth grade. Um, that was the one that did the front light into a Game Boy Advance, right? Yes, and that was before the SP came out, so that was right. pretty great. Um, I remember doing that myself. It came out really shitty. <laughs> I still have that driving screwdriver. Um, uh, that's the only one I have, so I'm glad it's, I guess it was good. Yeah, I'm not a fan of those front light mods. I, um, I had one, I did one to the, um, I think to Game Boy Color, and it came out alright. And then I had mine sent, I'm sorry, what? Did you tilt the, did you tilt the front light sideways or, uh, horizontal? Uh, I can't uh, remember because it was so long ago. I ended up, I, um, having another one done from, like, a, a professional modding service. I'm sure it's just a dude like me that does it out of his, uh, place, but... And it, it was exactly the same, which made me feel good that I didn't screw it up, but it's still not not what I had hoped for. Same, same well, uh, thing with the Neo Geo Pocket Color. Yep. So, fun story with those. Um, back around the same high school time, uh, it occurred to me to take the Game Boy Advance SP part and use an exacto knife and cut down the panel to fit the Game Boy Color screen, make it a square, and uh, that works as well as the Game Boy Advance SP one, which is okay. Um, and I realized it'd be, it's easier to just rotate the panel, mount it in sideways, and cut away some of the plastic, so you don't actually have to cut the panel at all. Upside is that you don't get your fingerprints on the panel. The downside is that the viewing angles for the backlight kind of become more horizontally biased. And that, that's it's this kind of washed-out look. Mm-hmm. So um, around that time, I remember Nonfinite Shop was doing pretty well with the backlights and stuff. So I believe he talked to a factory talking about trying to get new front light parts made. Hmm. which would be really cool. Um, but I think these samples came in and they weren't very good. Um, I don't remember the exact story here, but the ones you find like on eBay, the kits and stuff, and then all like the, the mods you can buy now on eBay, mm-hmm. are using those panels. That factory appears to have kept making them, even though they're terrible. So, so um, yeah, They're super washed out. You can barely see the image. The saturation becomes really poor. So I won't recommend to anybody to buy a, a front leg Game Boy Color unless they know it's been harvested from an SP which is kind of bad in its own way. So it's, it's, yeah. I don't you know, think it's funny. I did so much work in Asia for my last company. Right. And it's just, <laughs> it's, you know, China gets a bad rap, but don't forget, you know, there's a billion people. So there's more of everything, more assholes, sure. more nice people. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and it's just amazing stuff that comes out of China. And then there's going to, there's a lot more, there's a lot of cheaper stuff too. Like it's very right. opportunistic. And I think and that's the I exact scenario they, that happens so often though. So you have an idea, you run it through them and go, all right, you know, this has a potential for a couple thousand sales and you get the prototype back and you're, you know, this is a terrible idea, never mind. And then six months you see it for sale on Alibaba nowadays. Back in the day, you'd have to find it through the little shops. And it's like, even 
even though it was a terrible idea, they took your idea and made it anyway. It's like, yeah, right. Hell? So, you know, I guess if it was going to be nothing, I guess more power to them. But, you know, at the yeah. same time, it's just kind of like, this is kind of a free market thing. If you're, if you're informed about it, you'll know better not to buy a friend like it. So, mm-hmm. whatever. They can do what they want to do. Um, <laughs> I guess I just wouldn't, I would not recommend any of them to anybody. Yeah, me neither. And there's really no other option at all for Game Boy Color or for Game Boy Color is screwed. You gotta either play on an SP, have it stick out, and uh, you know that's okay. If the buttons are, I don't, I'm not a huge fan. Or playing the Game Boy Advance with it sticking out the top and have an afterburner. Uh, Game Boy Color is in a tough spot. It's a type of LCD that cannot be backlit. Um, uh, same as you know, we worked on the backlights. Uh, Palmer and I have talked a lot about the Game Boy Color one and messed with it and ripped the back off, tried to backlight it. I don't remember the name type of the LCD, but it is one that is specifically developed to only work reflectively. Mm-hmm. It works really well reflectively. It's a great reflective display, um, but you you just can't backlight it. I, yeah. I have a dream. I have millions of dollars. I'm gonna get. I want to get nice, full 160 by 144 OLED panels made for the form factor and make a drop-in replacement. But that's. I'm never going to do that. But that would be really cool. I, I actually – I mentioned that to a friend of mine who still he, – he spends half his time in California, the other half in Taiwan. And I yeah. kind of said, you know, would they even do this? What's the quantities? And he, he said if it's something that they'd ever made before and they had all the existing things still there, you yeah. could probably make it fairly cheap, but you'd have to buy a 1,000 of them. And I don't know that I could sell a thousand backlit Game Boy Color screens, nor do I would I want to take the risk and in investment because it's just me. It's not a company or anything. So. I think in totality, you might get a thousand sold everywhere. For one person to make that investment, that's tough. Because like, right. to contract a new LCD, it's extra expensive. Not, not an LCD, really, just any they need the modern display. Like, mm. there's new tooling to be done for all the parts of the entire assembly line. Uh, never mind like testing and uh, any amount of QA if you're going to even do that. If right. you don't have QA, you have to at least pay someone to put a fake QA sticker on it. That even that, you know, you're putting right. it. So, and we're um, still talking. It's going to be more, much more expensive than finding an AGS 101 um, with the backlit screen already in it. So, yeah, I think sure. it'd be cheaper just to take one of those and mod it into a, a Game Boy Color, it's you know, casing well, itself. You know, I already did that with the original Game Boy casing. Uh, I saw but, that. I saw the pictures yeah. online. Yeah, that it's, was cool. It was fun. I'm never going to do it again. It was such a pain in the ass. <laughs> it looked it. That's why I didn't do it. Yeah. The Game Boy in the area is not common ground, and it needs to be. So that was a lot of fun. Actually, um, Pitch Bent will now sell a kit that is just the uh, Game Boy button area, so it's easy to, you know, solder to. That's mm-hmm. kind of cool projects if you're doing that, but, you know. Have you ever tried messing with any of the video out stuff for the Game Boys? Um, not much. I've thought of a few techniques to do it. Actually, my roommate uh, at school a couple years ago, uh, you know, he got into FPGAs and Game Boy stuff uh, around the same time. So I was, uh, he did make a thing that would buffer it to the screen. Mm-hmm. The problem is that, like, even though the display is 60 hertz on there, the horizontal refresh rate is really low. Right. Um, so to do it, you either have to have, like, a kind of weirdly lo- weird length line buffer and do, like, a kind of line doubling technique. That's the low, li- the low latency way. Um, and that's only going to out- output properly to, like, a CRT or a tolerant DVA display because DVI, HDMI, all, all, and all the friends are pretty uh, strict as to what they want. That's yeah. more asking the computer to conform to the display, not vice versa. Um, or you could like capture to a frame buffer, but then you have to deal with things like potential lag or tearing, or you know uh, that's kind of the trade-off there. Mm-hmm. Uh, or triple buffering. So all those things I think are non-ideal. So I haven't really bothered. Uh, yeah. I think the best the best way is just to get a Super Game Boy too, uh, and then. You know, you can because the, the Super NES output is, uh, you know, it's 
half of 480p, so it's very easy to line double in comparison. Yeah, the, um, I've actually I've done a lot of testing with this just because I was always so curious. And while I love the Super Game Boy 2, the aspect ratio is still a little off. It's a little funny. And if you, you can correct TV, it if you're using you, a frame you, you could, Or you could uh, just take your CRT and <laughs> adjust the scanning or make it scan taller. Yeah, uh, true. Some, some PC monitors, if you, have, if you have like an XRGB 2 or 3 mm -hmm. in the doubling mode, you could just uh, drift the dimensions of the display until it fills the display. And then you have some nice big, big scan lines if you're into that. Yeah. Boy, it's a little odd, but whatever. Have you tried uh, the Game Boy interface software for the GameCube? I haven't. I've seen what it can do, and it sounds like it has all the trade-offs I just described. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can have you can have some tearing, or you can have a little bit of lag. Or, I don't know. That's cool. I like that it has 240p mode. I definitely better than the stock Game Boy Player uh, software, but I'm not a huge fan of the GameCube pad, and I could get the Game Boy Advance interface thingy, but that's a lot of inertia. Yes. Just, just yeah. use the Super Game Boy. I mean, Game Boy Color, is, that, that's a nice feature, obviously, but... Yeah, there's, there's a couple of people working on um, to actually taking, like, the goal is to find the original Game Boy Advance with, like, a busted screen, and then take the guts out, and then make it a consoleized version, and there's two separate projects going on. I tried to introduce them, oh. I can't remember how it went on, but Akari and Arcade TV, the German guys were working on it, and a new guy whose name I forget, and I'm so sorry if he's listening, but um, <laughs> an American kid who's doing it too, I think he's a college student as well. And they're uh, all running into the same issues. So. Well, this is funny because uh, the same roommate who did the Game Boy one, he also did it for Game Boy Advance. I worked with him on that. And um, we had some hard drive fun, and we lost it. Um, but, no, we, had, we totally had Game Boy Advance uh, running on his, like, PDM, a uh, little monitor. And it had just one up to one frame of latency because there was only uh, two buffers. But, you know, mm -hmm. eh, I, I don't know. It, it's it's not conceptually that different. It's the same challenge as the Game Boy. Yeah. Uh, if I remember correctly, it has a, just a higher dot clock, but it's the same horizontal scanning frequency. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, the Nintendo DS and DS Lite, or, uh, I guess DSi also, their scanning rate is compatible with NTSC. So I haven't thought about this, but I'm pretty sure you could just throw a tack on there because it's parallel RGB going to the screen. Pretty sure you could get it to output RGB through PDM without a lot of actual work. Huh. Uh, or lined up. That would be really I haven't cool. looked at it. I'm going on things I was told, mm -hmm. so it, I don't know. It could be wrong. Um, yeah, that would be awesome. That way, because I would love to be able to, you know, because I think it's a very comfortable device to hold. So I'd love to be able to have it into my TV and use that as the controller itself. You know, it's very easy to interface with a Super NES controller too. Uh, oh yeah, the console has it. Yeah, because like the if you just like take like a DS, maybe like the top screen's broken. Mm -hmm. It's easy to trick it into turning on anyway. Mm -hmm. So then uh, you've got a decent Game Boy Advance thing. You'd have a border, but that's better than nothing, maybe. So yeah, uh, you know, that's kind of a thing to maybe play with sometime to get a broken guess or something. Hmm. But I guess like all this kind of brings into light the, the real thing with any video conversion, the only thing that actually matters ultimately is the uh, is the scanning rate. Um, to an extent the dot clock too. But like everything else, like color spaces can be converted. Lines can be doubled. But like, um, you know, if you have 240p, which is, uh, you know, any resolution by roughly 252 lines of time, like, and I mean lines in the time domain where, you know, a line each line takes a certain amount of time to scan. Mm -hmm. um, everything really is just a description of timing. But then from there, like you can line double that. Uh, the resolutions for that are captured to a buffer, and, you, and since those are in lockstep with 480p, every two lines becomes every one line becomes two, and that doesn't have, to have any lag. It gets really hairy for other things. Actually, 720p is nice for line tripling in the same way, mm -hmm. uh, and that's great because it's a standard, you know. Uh, Standard resolution, but like think about like the 24 kilohertz Midway or Atari games, or yes. uh, I guess the X68K probably has it really rough. Um, 
because it has all these different scan rates. And those ones, like practical solutions to use a buffer or scale to some oddball 50 kilohertz resolution. Uh, you know, on, only weird stuff there. So I guess like uh, the thing that makes uh, like my FPGA project for Neo Geo, the reason that was pretty easy is because it's NTSC timing, the Neo Geo for the most part. And I, you know, little asterisk there, it's not quite, these are a little off 59 hertz instead of 60. But really, like in the ballpark, that's what it is, and that means going to PGA is really easy. Um, yeah, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I remember that popping up on your website what, about a year and a half ago or something. Yeah, um, a little while ago, I started the project from the development sense with a FPGA dev kit. Actually, um, since then, I've uh, you know, I made a PCB for it, and finally I've got these kits together, going out to people on NeoGeo.com. It's taken a long time because they have to be built. Mm-hmm. Um, I was doing them by hand, and then you know after doing like six of them, I thought like I'm really tired of this. So uh, there's a really cool company called Macrofab in Texas that is a um, very reasonable uh, low volume manufacturer uh, from like PCBs to also like in, uh, parts for uh, your bill of materials together, doing the ordering and installation. So um, for a very reasonable price, uh, you know here I'll open one just now. I just got this in the mail. This is the first time it's come out of the package. Um, you know this is. One of many. I just did an order of about 12. I'll look at that stuck in there. Not, not easy to open. Well, um, you know, these are all from Macrofab, and the little guy turned out pretty well. I wish I could get oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, you got a Cyclone 2 on there. Wow, that looks so, great. Voltage buffers. There are a lot of projects, uh, you know, that seem to be smaller run, but they, they don't translate from 5 volt to 3 volt and back. Mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. not great for either side in the long run. Got our DAC up here for DGA or component video. Not both at the same time, but you can do both. Uh, at both 240p and 480p, uh, with optional scan lines and optional sync on green, optional everything I could think of. Um, the reason it doesn't have any external memory because there's no buffer, um, well, there's a line buffer, but uh, the main thing is that uh, this is possible to do with not a lot of parts because the timings of the system it supports are half of the like, target 480p resolution. So, you know, there's no latency. Uh, it's technically one line of latency. Um, Which that's, is not detectable. <laughs> there's one two fifty second of a frame of latency if you want to be real picky. Um, wow, that's cool. pretty awesome. So that, that's the same as the XR2B2. It's, it's the same algorithm as the XR2B2. The biggest difference and what makes it cheaper and easier to engineer is that the XR2B2 has to um, analog to digital conversion. Mm-hmm. Um, first off, very fast. It's already expensive uh, to do it at that speed. But then more so, uh, it doesn't have any idea of the dot clock of the system, so it has to make an assumption and just sample a lot really fast. Now on the XRGB3, uh, which I have one over here, um, you can like adjust the, the the sampling rate, the dot clock. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, if you get that as some multiple original, it looks real sharp. If you get it a little bit off or out of phase, you get you're capturing on the transition from one pixel to another, and that kind of gives unpredictable results. But sometimes it's actually a really weird artifact. Hmm. Um, so, like, really expensive things like, uh, you know, nice scalers or really every VGA LCD monitor, there's a lot of crazy magic that goes into making VGA look any good on those, and that's doing the clock recovery, um, trying to align a possible sampling rate that goes with every transition. If you hit auto-adjust, you'll see it kind of, like, scale a little bit and try things, move the phase, and those ripples come from it trying to find out, you know, okay, which dot clock is going to give the least moiré effect with the, uh, the sampling. Because if you think of it as, if you think of the uh, progression of one line as a uh, some periodic uh, signal, you know, with the dot clock being the frequency of it, and the sampling rate, if those two are aligned, you can capture every pixel okay. 
if they're a little bit off, then you're going to have some pixels that get missed or some that get stretched and doubled. I'm sure we've all seen on scalers like at pixels from the um, uh, scaling ratio not being an integer multiple. Right. So, um, you know, that's fine for square systems. What do you do for CPS2 or 1 with the, uh, the tall pixels? Or really narrow. Narrow pixels is what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, that's really hard to solve. So the only way to do that is either capture at exactly 384 pixels per visible area, which I think is 512 counting the porches and sync. Um, you, what, do you, have a, do you have a 768 pixel wide display? Probably not. So uh, other than turning your XGA monitor on side. Uh, <laughs> those are not real solutions. So right. like, that's, that's one of the more challenging ones. This board actually does do CPS2 M1 also, mm-hmm. um, with a different firmware on it. Uh, it's not going to look good on most LCDs. Some are really good about it, and if they can't find a dock clock, they'll just assume a really high one and try their hardest. Um, some TVs with 4AP component are really funny, too. Uh, some of them try to do recovery, and some of them just try to sample as high as possible. And the sampling high as possible is actually really great for some reasons, uh, in some situations, because um, just like the N64 output fuzzy pixels mm-hmm. by default, um, that really throws those hot recovery or the clock recovery uh, systems for a loop because they have nothing to work with. They don't have those hard edges. It's really hard for them to determine, like, okay, this is a pixel. This is what we're trying to align to. Mm-hmm. So um, we can talk about a little bit later the idea of sharpening the video output. But doing that actually helps those systems align to the clock a lot easier, too. So oh, the image is sharper. It's, it's, it's sharper by means of a better sampling rate and alignment as well as just not being blurred and jitty. Uh, you know, as the developers intended it, but, you know, it looks awful, in my opinion. But, so you're um, selling those boards now right off your site or just directly off the forums? or On the forums. Um, You'll have to send now, me a link to them because I'll, I'll, uh, I'll link to them on my Neo Geo. Sure, yeah. yeah, I guess uh, until, I'm back with, until I'm back at school, like, I'm really busy and it's hard to deal with a lot of these at a time. So my last order was 12, and I'm probably not going to put another one until I get back to Rochester, New York. Gotcha. Uh, and then after that, I graduate and do what I want with my time. But um, until then, you know, kind of a little bit busy, that sort of thing. Yeah. But, um, Have you talked to Marcus at all about that assembly shop? Maybe that's a, an option for him in the open source scan converter. That's a good idea. Yeah, I guess now that I think about it, the thing, uh, it's being distributed as a kit, right? Yeah. Yeah, I yeah, think he's going to try to uh, – I don't think he's doing the pre-assembled ones. I think when he's doing the worldwide distribution, it's only going to be kits. Um, but I could be wrong about that. The last time I talked, that was the plan. So, yeah, maybe yeah. that'll help. That'd be great. Right now, I um, you know, I get these in. They've got this little programming port mm-hmm. on the top. And, uh, I have my programmer, which is one of these USB blaster clones. Very easy to find on eBay. Yeah, those are the cheap um, ones. Yeah, actually. So I made a bit of a programming rig. I have this uh, Pogo pins adapter. Uh, I haven't seen these. These are pretty cool. You got the board, and the pins just kind of, uh, they just go on there, and they're springy. And now I can program it and uh, take it off in the program. Uh, that's so awesome. Much easier to get these out. Uh, this is actually the Get the Ghetto Blaster, because uh, <laughs> I modded it to deliver power, so I don't have to get, like, the best harness or anything. So it's a lot easier to distribute these things. And I just set this up so I can get this uh, order out a lot faster. Um, but, yeah, I, I do wish the kit here was a little uh, a little more neatly put together. The uh, challenge here is that um, there are so many Neo Geos that I can't make it shape fit well in the Neo Geo because there are so many. Like, uh, you know, Temptress is uh, a high-def nest kit. That is, like, perfectly made to fit in the nest, and it looks great, and it's always going to be really neat. There are only a few different Nintendo variants, so I think it's a little easier to plan for. Or the... Uh, 
uh, Marshall's N64 kit, the HDMI one. That one is uh, yeah, that that one perfect. Is really, job. it's yeah. perfect. Um, yeah, that's a really well put together kit, especially with the flex cable there. Um, so you know, that's kind of like that's on the end of the ideal mod kit, right? Uh, I guess this is a little more of a DIY thing. Uh, actually, a few members have sent me their Neo Geo's. I can. I'm not doing installs. I don't have time for that for the most part. But uh, this is an NV1B, and uh, I've never had one of these before. So every time I want to say I can support a system, I have to test it. I have to make a diagram for where you even wire it. Um, so this is great because like, now I can figure out reverse engineer the deck on this thing, basically. Hmm. Uh, all in NV1C here. This is probably the most popular one because it looks like a console, kind of. So. Uh, Luckily, all those, I mean, I'm pretty sure there are only three actual variants that matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're all a derivative of that. Um, really, actually, two. Uh, there's the Neo GRZ chipset versus the original video one. They have different timings a little bit for the video. So, mm-hmm. apart from that, you know, there's one little solder pad and it's good to go. So, it's pretty easy to deal with. Yeah, that thing's awesome. I remember reading about it, but I didn't know that it had actually gone to sale yet. So, yeah, definitely send me a link. I guess I, I still call it like in very early releases, like the first version. Uh, and it'll work great for me. Fingers crossed people are able to install and get it working for themselves. Um, every monitor I've tried, it has worked on. I'm sure there are some weirdo ones that won't like 59 point whatever. Right, yeah. Um, That's a common I, thing with the Neo, uh, the Neo Geo home systems as well. And I remember Marcus talking a lot about that in the forums when the open source scan converter was first being tested and how everybody was excited that it, it did still work with the Neo Geo. So, so everyone says that. And... Um, I, I don't know. Like, is there just, like, a lot of stuff going around about sync that uh, is maybe a little bit made up? Uh, and I say that because I have an XRGB3. I had an XPC4, which is great for, you know, X68K, but also consoles, and an XRGB2. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had no trouble with any Neo Geo on any of these ever. Um, and I see some funny words, like uh, clean sync, raw sync, pure sync, powered sync. Uh, yeah, you know, I understand why people, especially why the cable sellers would choose words like that just to make things, just sure. to try to simplify the sale. And I don't mean that in a nasty way. I just, but it's it's done more harm than good in the long run. Yeah, so. like, I, I guess maybe those are terms that have been come up with for people who are maybe there's, you know, you just have like, let's say this, you know, someone, you know, he wants to wants to play Nintendo and wants to really enjoy it, doesn't know anything about like technology stuff. And I think that's a, that's a really uphill situation to get into because in order to do these setups, like there's a lot that goes into them in planning, you know, getting switches, getting uh, and converters if you need that sort of thing, uh, think strippers, sync on green combiners, there's, there's all this stuff. And it's all made for the pro video market, so it's mm-hmm. not made to be user-friendly. It's meant to be useful. Um, right, those Extron 203 boxes that I love, if you ever take them apart, there's dip switches on the inside, too, that yep. if you've bought a used one, well, they're all used now, and it doesn't work right, you know, how come 20 people I know have bought them and they're all perfect and this one isn't? Well, that's because somebody yeah. was messing with the dip switches on the inside, too, so it's yeah, it's complicated. Yeah, I have a few, uh, few Extron boxes. There's a really great VGA switch, actually, that auto-switches, but it's, uh, it's a good job and doesn't digitize it. Which is great because uh, I got a super emotion thinking it'd be kind of fun to be able to do uh, some 40p content to my uh, various monitors. And uh, I don't know, I think it's kind of a piece of shit. That's the problem with it. Uh, <laughs> really? Yeah. Uh, it's okay, maybe for like a Genesis game with 3 bit color. But um, we tried to use it just to enjoy like watching a movie because we have a, we, we have a 36 inch 48 480i TV. And we're like, well, it'd be nice to be able to hook up the computer to it. So we did. And. Um, I've tried like three different units, and they all have exactly the same problem. The um, it seemed like the 
uh, sampling depth of color channels, red in particular, is just really low. And it would just get really uh, dithery at low, not dithery, uh, it doesn't have dither, dither patterns. It's not enough to have dither patterns. It, uh, it'll just kind of flicker um, between colors. Like it doesn't have, like it looks like it was like four or five bit depth. Huh. And uh, just for like gradients and things like that, uh, like in movies especially, just, I don't know, it looks, it looks a little awful. So, and the horizontal sampling rate was kind of low. It doesn't do clock recovery. It, you know, it just tries. So it's definitely not made for watching movies. It's made for presentations. And I'm sure for those, it's great. Right, and yeah. Some games, there were some games it was good too, but I guess I left a little bit disappointed. I think the only 240p option I know of from a computer that's really good is probably the arcade GTA cards. Uh, I'm sure there are a lot of really cool converters like the Super Mario. I just don't know about. There are so many out there. Yeah, uh, Funda has a bunch listed on his, the Genius Box, and uh, my buddy Phil's yeah. tested a bunch of those. Um, I did, I'm pretty sure it's on the site. I can't remember what page it was on, but I did, um, using the 240p test suite, a comparison of just direct 240p and 480p uh, downres to 240p through the Emotia, the Super Emotia, yeah. and there was a noticeable difference. And I think I even have a quote from Funda explaining exactly what that was. Um, but I mean, yeah, I, I agree totally, but it's a, it's a cool device, but there's, um, I don't know. I, I would, I would, if at least you're using a PC into an RGB monitor, always uh, recommend a direct video card if you could, but there's yeah. one guy going around. Um, I forgot. I think it's the guy who does the big blue menu. Um, I never got a chance to talk to him, but he's uh, he's very strongly against the arcade VGA. He feels really? that using CRT MU driver and a newer ATI card combined um, is a better overall option. But I, I don't know, man. I, I know people that aren't very good with this stuff, and they just installed the arcade VGA, loaded the driver, and it worked perfect. There was nothing mm -hmm. to mess with. It just that's it. No hassle. So yeah, there are good software solutions. I'm all for that. I've I've never made software. Off 15 kilohertz work, for like back when that was a thing in the mid 2000s. Um, never seen it work. I'm sure it does on phone cards, but it does on uh, only very specific ATI cards. Are the only ones I've got yeah. working with. Yeah, so someday it'd be cool to get that working. But uh, actually, my, my my old ThinkPad, I have a ThinkPad P43, 10TMN. For whatever reason, under Linux only, the S video would do 240p. No explanation. There's no acknowledgement from the computer. I just thought that was weird, kind of cool, and weird. Uh, and that was with the actually, Intel integrated video? Yep. And uh, that's actually what we ended up using to solve our video watching problem that day. Uh, oh. we, we ended up watching The Simpsons in 240p, not as bad as you think. Um, that's hysterical. A little, a little bad, but not that bad. <laughs> I don't know what locked it into outputting only one field, but <laughs> I thought it was cool. Yeah, that's uh, neat. I've, I've literally, I mean, I spent hours trying, but I've never been able to force any of the Intel integrated graphics into anything like that. I've, I had never seen it before. A computer natively outputting 240p that, you know, was from the 2000s, I didn't think it existed, but apparently, apparently the, the capabilities in there, so. Huh, that's pretty that'd be, that'd be a cool driver hack for to do. There wasn't much control over it. So um, you mentioned before the N64 blur thing. You were working yeah. on that as well, right? Yep, so actually these boards, um, if I just don't install these uh, bus transceivers, the N64 is already 3.3 volts, so these became great testbed boards for N64 screwing around. Mm -hmm. um, so I have an old type one of these just in my N64 because uh, I wanted to give myself the RGB output. It was late revision. Um, and then I, I have 480p line doubler code for N64. I'm probably never going to release that because it's not as good as Marshall's. And it, the 480i support is flaky, and I don't want to release something like that, mm -hmm. nor do I want to have to deal with people complaining about something like that. So Fair. it's just for 
It's, it's mostly just for playing Super Smash Brothers. Um, but then I did the, you know, the, the sharpening stuff because I, when I was developing it, I had, I had read like, oh yeah, N64 has fuzzy output, and I believe it, and I'd, I'd, I'd done RGB out of it before and seen that. Um, but it actually made the development harder than it should have been because I'd look at it and it would look kind of shitty on the monitor, and I didn't know if it was my fault if I was accidentally causing the stack to blur pixels by either maybe it wasn't rated for that frequency. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, the weird thing about the N64 is that it always outputs 640 pixels per line, no matter what circumstance. Mm-hmm. Even if it's running in 320 by 240, the frame buffer may be that size, but the output is still 640 pixels. If if the game has requested some oddball resolution, like 256 by whatever, it's still outputting 640 pixels. Um, every game I've tested, and we've gone through a lot of them with the 64 drive, they all output that resolution uh, externally. The dot clock is a constant... Well, not the dot clock, the... <laughs> Proprietary weird communication clock is 50 megahertz. That's, that's what drives the video output chip. Mm. I guess the output dot clock is always 12.5 megahertz, and that never ever changes. So, uh, I you know it seems like the blurring feature in 320 by 240 mode is uh, an option. Um, one of the registers, I guess it's called VI, uh, VI blur in a lot of situations, but I don't know much about NPC4 software development, so I don't know uh, more than that. But um, it is something that could be enabled or disabled by a developer. And what it seems to do is just for every every second pixel of the 640 pixel output will be blurred uh, 50% with the previous. So um, it's basically take, take an image in an image editor, paste it over itself in a new layer, move it over one pixel, and the opacity to 50%, and you can recreate the effect that it has. That's a great um, way to describe it. And that's and then, Marshall's board. Um, uh, that's the de-blur option on his board. That's what that's yeah. doing is shifting it back, correct? His has a really good heuristic that determines is this even the case. And mm-hmm. uh, you can also de- uh, determine, you know, which columns are being blurred, even or odd. Because if you think about it, if you've taken something where every pixel is twice as wide, and you have the yeah, one of them, the off by one fifty percent one, well then every other column is unmodified and unmarred. So. Uh, my simple fix is to just uh, basically sample only the good columns, and then instead of sampling the column that's blurred, I just repeat the previous pixel for every pixel, uh, for every two pixels. So um, the problem here is that, like, uh, if you've ever played Super Smash Bros. and gone to screen adjust, you can actually uh, move the image around horizontally to adjust for your display, and that moves it at that, I guess, sub-pixel precision, you could call it, thinking in terms of the frame buffer. So... That, that makes my uh, deep blur, instead of sampling every good pixel, it samples only every bad pixel. Yeah, so, you know, if, if you were to do this manually, you'd have a switch for enabling deep blur, but then also determining which column you want to drop. Marshall's thing is great. It has a heuristic, and it, it can figure this out on its own uh, and disable when not needed. That said, if you have a game that isn't using the, the, the filter, but it's a 320 by 240 game, mm-hmm. well... Even the debler isn't going to make it any worse. You're not dropping any information. You're only dropping repeat information. So there's no harm. And on my N64, I have a, I have a set of dip switches on the back for this sort of thing, but I've never turned it off because there's no reason to. Um, for 480i games, I don't know of any 480i games that aren't 640 pixels wide, so I just turn it off for any 480i uh, context. So my N64 has that built into it, and it's all right. But uh, anyone who really wants it, they should probably get Marshall's kit. If you really wanted RGB out of Marshall's kit for 480p, if you were to put it at the uh, 480p output option over HDMI and tell it to do direct display, and then take the HDMI and get it out to VGA, there are lagless converters for this job um, mm-hmm. because they're really only IP on the attack because the timings of HDMI are still the same as VGA. Mm-hmm. 
should give you a lagless 480p output if you really want that. Um, you know, really, I've seen the most use out of a 480p component um, for my board, both for Neo Geo and N64, because uh, yeah. a lot of new TVs still have 480p component uh, support. They may not have 240p that's very good, or 480i kind of sucks. Um, yeah, it drives so, me nuts when the, the TVs interpolate, or, um, interpret 240p signals as yeah. 480i interlace. It drives it's me crazy. really nasty. And they do this kind of like smoothing stuff, too. Things things move, and they look a little different than the things that are holding still. That's, hmm. that's I guess, also a result of that uh, that uh, line blending. So, so the, the code that's going around for Tim's board, I think Bordy posted it. Brian, weren't you working yeah. on that as well, too? Um, we, we worked on this in total isolation, but I think we came up with the, uh, the same solution. Um, mm-hmm. And that, that's great. He's made his available. Um, I think his is only doing the RGB printing, uh, the right, perfect. Yeah. Um, whereas mine, mine, I really tacked this feature onto my line doubler, the mm-hmm. 480p. So that's why I'm not releasing mine. Um, I, I did compile it for Tim's board, but I never actually flashed it because I never bothered because I don't have Tim's board. Uh, that was the plan. It sounds... I've emailed him a little bit, and uh, I, you know, described my fix to him. So with any luck, that'll be an actual feature that comes in with it. That'd be nice. It's easy yeah. to put the pads on the board for switches, so that's cool. Uh, yeah, my life in gaming did a bunch of. I'm not sure if you saw the video, but when they did the um, the mixing of using Marshall's HDMI board, turning the you know the sharp pixel mode on. And then also mixing the game shark codes to, to do the software anti-aliasing. I thought in some games it was phenomenal. I thought, I mean, yeah, it looks a little jagged on a flat screen, but if there if there was a solution for that for RGB monitors, I think it would be pretty close to, like, a, a better-looking SNES, I guess, is the best way to put it. So, yeah, the, the, the game shark codes are interesting. Um, turning off the anti-aliasing in those games, that's a really cool experiment. Uh, and I can, it actually can help performance for some of them. Uh, although the main detriment of performance is the fill rate of the N64, so big polygons are still your main enemy. Um, the, the thing that was kind of annoying when we talked about the deep blurring is that for a little while, a lot of people were talking about them like they were the same thing, and that the effect on the image was the same, while well, they're actually wildly different. Because uh, if you have the anti-aliasing turned off, well, it's still smearing the image. So you have blurry jaggies, if that makes any sense. Yes, yeah, it uh, totally does, yeah. So... Um, I got a game shark to translate with the code, and it didn't work as a piece of junk, so I threw it out. But uh, sometime I like to get a different game shark that works and play with it because it, you know that'd be kind of cool to play with. Maybe for Super Smash Brothers uh, or four player, it, it's kind of hairy with performance, mm-hmm. mostly because of graphics. There's a little bit of CPU slowdown, but there's also a lot of graphical slowdown that has nothing to do with overclocking. You can't just fix it that way. So if that helps, that'd be cool too. Yeah, uh, have you ever overclocked an N64 just to see what the performance was like? Yeah, uh, most games aren't CPU bottlenecked. They're mostly graphic bottlenecked, and that doesn't help the overclocking. Um, Super Smash Brothers, uh, like Teams games, do get a little bit better because there is a little bit of CPU slowdown too. I think the collision detection causes a lot of uh, time being spent. Because um, if you have friendly fire on, it's actually a lot slower, which that's what makes me think that. Um, but there's also a lot of graphics bottlenecking, which is why the Donkey Kong stage can't run full speed with two players even. Uh, it, hmm. I. I don't know exactly why. I'm not a 3D graphics guy, but it's noticeably different. So anything that can help those, that, that'd be cool. Um, I like Smash 64 a lot, so having that be a you know nice playable thing uh, also with a lot of people. Well, actually, not a lot of people, with good teams people. I don't like playing with four players usually. Uh, that'd be nice to have. So I'll play with that sometime. But uh Things like the EverDriver, 64 driver, kind of expensive. And I only want a one of the four games, so I can't justify it exactly. 
Yeah, I own them all because I just, you know, I, I especially love it for testing, but I just want the option to have it. But, I mean, for the for the most part, I mean, I, I, I try to play a lot of the SNES and Genesis games, but, I mean, the Game yeah. Boy Advance games, I own the, the only 10 Game Boy Advance games I'll ever play. But I still bought yeah. the EverDrive Game Boy Advance just because. So it's, you know. Yeah, it's, I, I see those as, like, that's a great way to try things. Um, I've got a number of those systems, uh, the cartridge emulators, I guess you could call them, RAM cards, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, especially during this time of my life, I'm moving about a lot. Um, but, yeah, try uh, moving your collection everywhere you go, rather than just yeah, one so apart. I've, I've kept, you know, I've kept a good number of collection things. Um, I'm never letting go of my game of cartridge, but, uh, you know, Right now, it's kind of hard. Unfortunately, uh, those are only getting more expensive, so that's actually rough. Yeah. And I hope someone makes one for the Neo Geo that's any good. Um, those multi-carts, don't get me started on those multi-carts. They're awful. Um, I've but, never seen one that I liked. <laughs> so, Especially the Neo Geo ones. There was 161 to one multi-cart, yeah. and, but there was not 161 games. Not even, nope. and a lot, Most of them didn't work right. There were issues. Yeah, so uh, I, I got that cart once to try it. Um, number one, off the bat, it's all 3.3-volt stuff in there. Um, Electronics has a great post on Sprite's Mind about why this is bad for both the system and the cartridge. Mm-hmm. I don't I don't care about the cartridge. The cartridge can go die for all I care, but the system, I don't want to damage the Neo Geo. It's just A6 that can't be replaced. Right. Uh, especially not an expensive system like that, or really any of them. But there's also a lot more power consumption, and that's bad. So... Uh, if I find that link, I'll, I'll give it to you and you can include it. Yeah, that'd be neat. I'd love to post it. It's a good read. But, um, you know, number one, it, it doesn't have anything to really deal with that. It either over, overvolts the chips or runs them at 3.3 volts and has the I.O. lines at too high of a voltage. And it does both. There are different variants of this cart configured differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, there aren't even, like, resistors in line. That would that would be a huge upgrade. Um, number two, uh, oh, there's so many hacks on there. But also... The two games I wanted most that are really expensive and out of reach are Windjammers and Money Puzzle Exchanger. Well, it doesn't have Windjammers, and Money Puzzle Exchanger was bugged. The music didn't play during the game, and yep. that's not fun at all. The sound yeah, my cousin actually, Scott's quest for cheap Windjammers has been going on for years now. He loves that game, and they're not any of the multi-carts or anything. So Yeah, the cheapest way to play Windjammers is to get a Neo Geo CD and play that version. He uh, bought a Neo Geo CD, uh, and, uh, which you know takes CDR games just for Windjammers, just for yeah. that. It's the most reasonable thing to do, which yep. is like unfortunate. I have a uh, yeah, I have a broken Metal Slide 2 cartridge I got for like 10 bucks. Um, ah. Metal Slug 2 is great. It has the uh, Prog PK1 boards, which is uh, can address a lot of ROM space without any protection. So maybe maybe one of these days I'll play with making a uh, you know a giant RAM cart, and that's a lot of buses to deal with. There are a lot of different ROMs you have to pretend are on a cart. And well, see if Darksoft can... is coming out with it probably this fall. Actually, did you see that project at all? Yeah, I did read about that, and that's that's what demotivated me to not really work on it because I, I don't I don't want to. <laughs> I don't. I don't have time for that. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, somebody's already spent all that time. It's like, why would you start from scratch yeah. on your own project? Um, so, so uh, what else do you got going on? I mean, obviously you're gonna finish school and everything. That's probably overwhelming, yeah. and time-consuming. But any other projects you're working on, or anything else that you're doing next, or just kind of uh, working on that that board that you were showing us and, and waiting for school? Well, I said the fun part is right now. Um, where I'm working as an intern, uh, I have to not be working on anything right now. So I'm actually thinking very hard about what I'm going to work on um, just right now. Um, what I was working on before and will be working on when I'm done, uh, let's see, in terms of hardware projects, mostly just the Neo VGA board, um, as we talked about. 
Uh, I am also working on two games right now. One is for NES, and that is for the NES Dev competition that it ends in December. Uh, well, it really ends on the New Year's. And uh, I've been working more long-term on a Sega Genesis port of uh, Labyrinth King Sector. Um, oh. It's an old, old PC game from 2004, I think, 2005. And it's, uh, you know, I, don't know, I played it when I was uh, in middle school as a kid a lot. So, uh, you know, I, I liked it. And it seemed like a really good match for the platform. So uh, those systems really, uh, that's where I learned a lot of, like, embedded system stuff from, really. So, uh, you know, that's kind of has gotten me into the, how I'm doing now and what I probably want to do later. So uh, some of the good playgrounds is for, you know, trying things with regards to programming in these small environments. Um, I'd like to get both of those things done because why would you not want to release a new game for a 80s console? Right, yeah. Uh, Hell yeah. Oh, that's I awesome. Almost, well, I definitely keep me Genesis. posted on all that stuff. As soon as any of these things get released, let me know, and I'll, sure. I'll put it up on the news thing. So. And, uh, for a while, I was working on a Genesis port of a PC game I finished and have on Steam, and the irony would have been that it sounds like the Genesis version may have been easier to market and sell, because <laughs> um, it turns out there are a lot of games on Steam with uh, old-style game graphics, um, for better or worse. Yeah, I've only I, I've only played one or two, and uh, I, I was happy with the ones I played, but I, I feel like a lot of times people are just capitalizing on the fact that there's a huge market out there for people that yeah. like 2D side-scrollers, so hey, let's just... Draw, you know, draw basic art and do it, and so. Yeah, that's that's kind of like that's almost like a misappropriation where like, you know, that's very much a cash grab. If you know, you've drawn something low resolution, well, it's easy to just say, oh, it's retro, and then catch in on that. But I don't know. I think that's a little bit toxic. Um, yeah. It's just there are definitely a lot of good games out there that have been done in this old style, but they have selling points beyond that, mm-hmm. and it kind of devalues what might really be there. I think to do that. Um. And it, I guess it's kind of like, you know, like when an artist might imitate the style of like a different type of music they're not used to. Mm-hmm. If they do it, do it like a chintzy job, and it doesn't, you know, they're, they're only very superficially emulating the style. It, it's it's kind of nauseating, right? Like you know, yes. you hear like a, you know, imitations of another culture's music. That's some of the ones that are really, honestly, offensive all the time, but yeah. also just like kind of hard to listen to, almost embarrassing. I think there's a lot of that with that kind of style copying too like to not get what makes a nest game uh interesting as from a stylistic and artistic perspective i think that's kind of doing it to service mm-hmm. um and to say like oh well it's nostalgia that's why you like it it's kind of implying that the game wasn't actually good and the only reason you're going to play it is for that <laughs> right nostalgia i didn't have a nest growing up it has nothing to do with it mm-hmm. uh, you know uh, I made my game trying to look more like kind of a mix of like MSX and Virtual Boy style. Uh, everyone hates the Virtual Boy. I think it looks really neat. Um, I like the Virtual Boy. I just hate that there aren't that many good games for it. <laughs> it's a horrible VR set. Um, I'll give it that. But uh, the screen is really, really sharp. I think it has great contrast. And it, I don't know, a lot of games have really interesting style to work with it being so dark. Like I the, loved uh, the Wario game. I thought that yeah, was great. Wario Land looks great. Um, and there are a lot of interesting decisions there that are harder to make in other contexts, which is kind of like the Game Boy games are really weird artistically in that way. Uh, Game Boy is really something that came around about, uh, really came into fruition during the Super Nintendo time. The Super Nintendo, you have these, you have a lot of like shading, you know, a lot of colors. Uh, whereas the Game Boy, in terms of hardware, it's a little closer to NES in terms of what you can expect from it. Not a lot of sprites and only four tones, mm-hmm. but the artists of the time are definitely more used to the higher, like, you know, amounts of shading you could do. 
And on the Nest, you just can't do that. You don't have that many colors, and you're not going to waste them all on like a monochrome shading scale. You want to have more colors to work with with flat shading. Well, the Game Boy is interesting because there's similar hardware without the colors to worry about. They're doing all this like interesting and detailed stuff with great shading and character designs that are actually pretty detailed. Um, you couldn't do on the Nest like reasonably. Um, yeah, a perfect example of that is if you look at Super Mario Land 1 and then Super Mario Land 2 on the original totally. Game Boy. Mario Land 2 is very very early NES style, and Mario Land 2 looks like Super Mario World, a lot cl- like a lot closer. Yeah. And I guess like that that kind of constraint, you get the same thing on the Virtual Boy a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it, has, it has these really bright, poppy, contrasting colors. Um, a lot of MSX games, I think, have this too, like the Gradius games and Proteus. There's a lot of interesting details in there. Like in what what should be like the worst circumstances for graphics. Um, so I think that's a really neat thing to look at. And uh, you know, I guess you could easily look at it and just say, oh, well, low res, pixels, and you know, you're done. But uh, I don't know. There, there are a lot of tricks you have to do to make make these constraints uh, look intentional, really. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, you know, that kind of goes back to the N64 low res stuff. Um, if you look at a game like Yoshi's Island, I think we can, everyone can agree that's a great looking game. Mm-hmm. Um, art, like every, everything, all the art is very, very intentional. There's a style they were going for, they knew the limitations, and they made it look really good uh, with what they had. Um, to the point where, say, a oh, high resolution would make it look better is hard because uh, pixel details were done intentionally. Right. Uh, like a lot of it evokes, like, you know, a watercolor effect, mm-hmm. but a lot of it also doesn't. Like Yoshi's sprites aren't watercolor, they're their pixel art. Um, a lot of N64 games are 3D. 3D is a little more abstract. You're not saying, I want this pixel to be this. You're telling, it's, it's, you're more saying, like, this is my character. I've designed him this way. And you're, you're asking the graphics processor to render it uh, in certain circumstances. So how it does that and which pixels go where are more of a side effect to your design rather than facing things individually. So that's one case where I can't argue that low res makes N64 games really look better. It might hide might hide the lack of detail in certain situations, but like um, that's one thing where I think the, the pixel details don't bring out exactly as much uh, a much artistic intent, if that makes sense. Um, yeah. Compared to earlier games, where to to obfuscate the pixel details is like taking away all they ever. It's like the only thing they had. Mm. Uh, so taking away is kind of uh, also not great for it. Um, you know, I think those those constraints are what make the style interesting. Mm-hmm. So, uh, maintain that's really important. Yeah, it's something I noticed too when going over like some of the Saturn 2D games, and just because there there weren't that many of them, but just when when you got the higher detail, like you know, I remember as a kid thinking, you know, when NES turned into SNES, I just thought this is perfect. Like this is, you know, I no longer need to use so my good. imagination and pretend that you know the old man in Zelda is the old man. Now it looks like an old man. But I thought, oh, I can't wait to see what comes next. Am I going to be that much more blown away? And it's just, it's different. It's not. It's yeah. just different, not better. So I think once yeah. you hit around the 16-bit Absolutely. style of graphics, it's, you know, you have everything you need where, you know, your imagination lets you get into the game, not having to worry about what character looks like what or what background looks like it's supposed yeah. to. So. Oh, and there's, there's a really uncomfortable era in 64 um, where they weren't sure how abstract their characters should be. Uh, on the NES and Super NES, you, know, like you have an RPG and you have this, like, twitchy two-frame sprite of their arms moving, and you're like, okay. I can figure this out. They're walking. They look right. a lot like walking, but uh, as a rational adult, I can figure out do this abstraction for walking. 
That's okay. Exactly. And you don't look at it and think, well, this animation is terrible. The animation right. isn't trying to specifically show this is how your joints move. <laughs> right, and, exactly. It's okay. Right. It's okay. Um, and you have enemies that they might just like, like the Goombas, like they're, they're mindless. They're just staring straight and straightforward, moving side to side. That's okay. I I don't think that the designer wants me to think this is the exact object in real life. It's right. very abstract. And that's, uh, that, that's fine. Um, there's a in the N64 era, uh, and some of the Super NES also, like a lot more details, a lot more frames of animation. Some of the enemy behaviors weren't updated with this uh, lesser abstraction. We've gotten more specific with how the characters are supposed to act. So have them do mindless things, like just walk side to side in a platform, it starts to look more ridiculous. Because if you've drawn this villain, he's got a complex face and a facial expression, he's carrying tools and whatever... What's he doing? Why is he walking back and forth? He can do anything else with that time. That question, I think, becomes a lot more strong. And I think this is taken to the logical extreme. I was shown the game Braid. I hadn't hit it for a long time. But so much detail on the character's face, great-looking backgrounds, and what the hell are the enemies doing? I asked the same question because they're so detailed. They're drawn with a personality. They don't look mindless. They're acting mindless. I think that's kind of weird. Whereas, like, in a... A lot of like, the bigger open world RPGs, characters get like NPCs are given a lot of purpose. Or like look at um, uh, Shenmue, right? Every character has a little purpose there, and they're very detailed to match that. And I think that that goes together really well. Hmm. Uh, whereas you know when you can go to like uh, go up to someone in like a 3D RPG and you can talk to them and look at the same line twice, that's way more jarring than when in Pokemon you walk up like Game Boy, they say the same line twice. You kind of I guess. I don't want to say it's just that you're more accepting of something that's worse. I think it's just that it's it's it, it, again like it's very different, yeah. and uh, not necessarily a matter of it just being squarely better, but the the style they're going for in terms of the storytelling is also really different. Now I'm really curious to see your game because you have such a grasp <laughs> on this. So. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I could send you a, a link on it. I, despite everything I just said, I'm not depicting some crazy story or anything. Actually, the story is hardly more than an afterthought out of obligation. Um, Sometimes it doesn't. I mean, kind of, that's kind of exactly what I want. Mario's story is absolutely an afterthought. Right. Uh, totally. Doesn't matter. There's a princess. Go save her. Get to the end of the level. Who cares why she's there? Then you got Mario with like the, the detailed like gene patterns on his overalls, and you know if you're gonna make him put these human like details, can we talk about the size of his head then because it's kind yes. of that's another thing. This hasn't changed with the amount of realism you're putting into his environment. Now you're more impl- implying. No, that's really how he's shaped. This is Mario. <laughs> and you put yeah. him next to Peach, who is shaped a little more reasonably uh, in terms of head size. And like the noggin on that plumber. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, it's like he's got to be a smart guy. Look at him. Um, so, uh, you know, that's, that's another weird updated thing. Uh, they sure tried with Sonic. He's very equipped to play basketball these days uh, and his physique. But, uh, you know, it's just that's 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 a weird update to do. Uh, if, you, if you don't update... If you don't, it, it seems half-assed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so the sprite designs, I think it's a lot more accepting because they've accepted this abstract, or like the, the chibi style, I guess, is or the super deformed. That's like that. That's a very that's very far to the left of this sort of thing, and mm-hmm. uh, doesn't stand out. Well, yeah, thanks so much for coming on and doing this, man. I've been wanting sure. to talk to you for a long time, so this is perfect. I get to, you know, I feel like I hope everybody else is having as much fun as I did. I feel like I get to catch up with somebody that I knew but never knew because I've been following sure. your website but I never talked to you before. So this is neat. I appreciate you coming on. Sure, no problem. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and please keep me updated on um, – just shoot me an email whenever you have any updates on any of your projects or any of your games, and I'll make sure to include it in the news and everything and keep everybody else uh, abreast of what's going sure. on. Cool. Thanks a lot.
Yeah, well, thanks again, man, and I'll uh, I'll talk to you soon. Yep. Later.